Grace and peace to you all. We are working our way through uh, several encounters with Jesus that various people in the scriptures had. Because every time someone in the Bible encountered Jesus, something huge, dramatic, and life-changing occurred. And we thought if that happens every time in the scriptures, shouldn't that happen in our lives as well? And when we look at it, the answer is yes. So if we are going to learn how Jesus should be changing our lives, we need to see how he's changing the lives of those that he met in scripture. Now today, I am going to be in Mark chapter 5. We are going to hear about the man who was possessed by a number of demons. But I'm going to start in a different place. And I'm going to start with some deep theology. At which point you all panic. Don't panic. I promise it will not hurt, nor will it put you to sleep. Probably. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And then in verse 25, God does exactly what He said He was going to do. He creates all of the livestock. And then in verse 26, it says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Whose image is mankind, humankind, made in? God's image. That's right. And in Genesis chapter 2, God looks at human being number one that He has created and said, you know, it is not good for this thing that I have created to be alone. And He makes the one into two. It's an amazing magic trick. First there's one, then there's two. Want to see that again? No? Alright, well. And not only does He make them two, but He gives them the ability to replicate themselves. So, there's two, and then there's more. And then there's lots more. And then we fill the world. We've created all these people all of whom bear the image of God. Whose image is humankind made in? God's image. Absolutely. And that is all of us. Men, women, all colors, all sizes, everyone who has ever been is created in God's image. So then what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Oh, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's a lie going on here. This is the lie. If you eat the fruit, it will put the image of God in you. That's what he just promised her. This is what will make you like God, eating from the fruit of that tree. So the lie that he is telling is you are not in the image of God. That is the lie of sin. That is the goal of the adversary. 
to get us to give up our humanity by using sin to obscure the image of God in us. Think of us all as mirrors. You all know how a mirror is made, right? You take a sheet of glass, you take something reflective and paste it on behind it. So we are like the sheets of glass with the image of God shining through to our reflective backing for us to reflect out. When you look at us, what you should see is God's image reflecting through us. Sin, then, are all those things that scuff up your glass, that mess up the mirror so you can't see that reflected image. I, metaphors break down the more you push them, so I'm going to leave that one right there. i got a better illustration even. Think of us, instead of thinking of us as mirrors, and this is going to be a stretch, think of us as human beings. Alright, everyone got that picture in your mind? You are a human being. And as a human being, you are in fact a special kind of creation that is a higher order than that of other earthly beings. Those other beings that have been created, like cattle and sheep and wolves and lions and all the other animals, they run on instinct and pre-programmed behaviors. Did you know there's a butterfly that takes multiple generations to get from one end of its migration path to the other? How does it know where to get there? They've been doing that for thousands of years. Google didn't exist back then. It's all on instinct and pre-programmed behavior. We, on the other hand, instead of running on instinct or pre-programming, we run on choices and decisions. Now, there is a lie. There is a lie that goes on with this programming idea. The lie is that we, human beings, are no different from all the other animals that God created on the earth. But there is a difference because we don't have that pre-programming. The lie that we are the same erodes away who we are, convinces us to give up our choices, and reduces us to a lower level than we could be. As human beings, you get to decide everything that you do. You decide whether you're going to listen. You decide whether you're going to speak. You decide whether you're going to take steps this way or that way. Everything that happens, you decide. The adversary's goal is to reduce us in our own eyes so that we are individual animals rather than human beings who work together. Because all animals, even the ones that are pack animals and pride animals, they are very individual in how they behave. And this is what unaddressed sin does in our lives. It separates us from one another, splits us up, and it obscures the image of God that is there trying to shine through each of us. Sin convinces us we're nothing more than animals. It convinces us that we're worthless. And it drives us out of our communities into isolation and destruction. In Mark 5, Jesus meets a man who embodies what happens when you let sin run rampant in your life. So we're going to start at Mark 5, chapter... I'm sorry, Mark 5, chapter 5, obviously. Uh, verse 1. They, Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Alright, so we've got a man possessed by demons in the region of the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes, uh, for those of you who are curious, I'm sorry I don't have a map to show you today. The Gerasenes are Decapolis. Uh, it's uh, uh, ten cities. They're Greek cities. There are nine of them east of the Jordan River and one to the west. And they are all kind of east-southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So if you were looking at a map to the north, north, we've got Capernaum up here. Wait a minute. Make it so you can see it. Capernaum up here, kind of in the northwest corner. And then if you go across the sea to the east, you would find all these ten cities here, Decapolis. And here, they found a man with an impure spirit. Now literally, the phrase says, unclean spirit. And it means a spirit that makes or leads one to be unclean. So it does not necessarily mean something supernatural. Although the way Mark describes it here, he very much intends us to take this as a supernatural presence in the person of this man. The focus, though, is not so much on the spirit possessing the man as it is on how that spirit is affecting him. He is obviously in misery. And he's also obviously seen as a threat by those around him because they keep trying to chain him up. They keep trying to push him out of their society. They keep trying to lock him away so that he can't get out. Luke tells us up front, by the way, that this man was naked. And Mark is going to remind us of that in time. So you have to add that to your picture of this guy. He's running around naked. He's got no clothes on. Why is that important? Well, it tells you something about how he's dehumanized himself. He doesn't care. Or maybe he cares, but he's trying to bring shame to the people around him. In ancient times, seeing someone who was naked was shameful to you, the seer, even more than it was to them, the naked. -er. Not sure how to make that. If you remember back in uh, Genesis, there's kind of an obscure story at the end of the Noah story where uh, Noah gets drunk and lays around naked. And there's all kinds of interpretations about what may or may not be meant there, but essentially, in ancient culture, laying around naked, the shame in the story comes when one of his sons comes in and sees him and then goes outside and makes fun of him instead of covering him up. And his brothers, hearing that, they went and covered him up and dealt with the shame rather than uh, anything. So that's a whole different story. Now this guy here, not only is he naked, he's living in a graveyard. So he's carrying shame with him that he's casting on people around him. And he's living in a graveyard which would make him unclean in the eyes of 
Jews who avoided the places of the dead. Not that this behavior would have been seen as healthy by the Greeks either. Remember, he's in this Decapolis area. It's Hellenized. It's, It's Greek cities. They're Jewish cities, but they're Greek inhabitants. They're people who have essentially given themselves to Greek culture. But even in Greek culture, hanging out in a graveyard, no one did that. That's somewhere that scavengers would go. It's not somewhere that human beings wanted to be. It's somewhere that animals went. The only things that you allowed to hang out at graveyards were predators, scavengers, who fed on bodies. Everyone else you tried to chase away. No one else would choose to spend their time among the dead. And like I said, this man is definitely thought of as a threat. And maybe that's partly because he's running around naked and hanging out in graveyards. But we see that his countrymen tried time and again to bind him with ropes and chains, but they wouldn't hold him. He was like a wild animal on the loose. Day and night he would prowl around, howling, and cutting himself with stones. Because he had so little control of himself that he would injure himself. Now, nowadays, we can address this kind of condition psychologically. Psychologically, this kind of self-injuring behavior is done by someone who feels that it is their only control over their life. Hurting yourself in a way that you can choose to stop makes the rest of your pain seem more bearable. His life has become so painful that the only way he knows how to deal with the pain is to cause himself more pain so that he can stop causing himself pain and it stops hurting a little. As a youth leader, this was one of the biggest things I had to deal with with kids in trauma. Kids from broken homes, kids who were neglected, kids who were addicted is they would reach a point in their lives, particularly when they were young teens, where they would start to self-injure. Especially with girls, you would see this come out in cutting, where they would take scissors or razor blades and they would cut themselves. It happened with boys too. But boys have more outlets for their self-injuries. Boys in the same kind of situations, instead of starting to see scars on their arms, a lot of times you see them take up uh, in uh, more violent sports like football, or uh, boxing, martial arts. And you'd start to see these kids who were good kids in difficult lives who would be hurt in unusual ways, break bones and things that, you know, everyone would be like, oh, how did that happen? Well, they're putting too much of themselves in because they're enjoying the pain because when it stops, when the pain they control stops, it hurts less. Kind of changes the way that you think about this guy hanging out in the graveyards. Hurting yourself causes your brain to send endorphins through your body. It causes an almost euphoric feeling. Um, Think of it as an animal chewing off their own leg to get out of a trap. You all heard about that, right? It's not so common these days. But people uh, would go and set these traps to catch deer or rabbits or whatever. And the animal would be in so much pain from the trap hanging on that it would actually bite and chew through its own flesh and its own bones until it could get free of the trap, causing itself probably a fatal wound at the same time. 
but it makes the pain of having your leg in a trap go away. This man's behavior is antisocial, self-destructive, and in a lot of ways, he has given up being human and has taken on being an animal. Now, when I put it that way, when you read it this way, do you see any parallels to today? I feel like we see so many people like this now that they begin to blur into the background. They've obscured the image of God in themselves so much, they seem almost to have become part of the wildlife of the city. But they're not. Every single human person is created in the image of God. Every single person has that indelibly imprinted in them. It doesn't matter how much we try to obscure it. It is always there. So it is our shame as much as it is theirs that so many people are forced to live like animals. This guy in particular, this garrison, he runs to Jesus and he falls on his knees. And if you read this in the King James Version, it misinterprets this as an act of worship, but that's not what's happening. It just says he falls on his knees. Some people say this is the last pieces of the man coming to Jesus seeking help. But more likely, it's the demons who possess the man recognizing they're in the presence of a higher power. And they're trying to interrupt whatever that higher power is about to do. You know, the story said Jesus has already started to tell the demons, the impure spirit, to come out of that man. Notice also the spirit has taken over the man's personality and is even using his voice. That's what the demons of sin do in our lives. We let the sin speak for us. We let it defend itself. It deflects any inquiries that might cause us to examine our lives and our choices. Anything that might cause us to try to take control back. That's what the adversary doesn't want. I don't want you to make your own choices because if you make your own choices, maybe you'll stop doing the things that hurt you. Maybe you'll start choosing the things of God rather than the things of humans, addictions, demons, however you want to phrase it. Now we put all this together with what we've seen in the previous verses. It's obvious that this man is not in control of himself at all. This impure spirit is trying to distort and destroy the image of God in his person. It's making him into less than his creator intended him to be. And it does not want Jesus here getting into its business. So when man comes, he falls on his knees and the spirit says, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus? Notice also the Spirit recognizes Jesus for who He is. Calls Him the Son of the Most High God. He considers just being in Jesus' presence and hearing His voice to be torture. Don't torture me. It's kind of ironic that this Spirit, which is actively engaged in torturing a man out of his humanity, would cry out, don't torture me. This is what happens when we let the demons take hold in our lives. You want to know why so often preachers preach sin management? This is it. They don't want anyone to slip. Don't slip. Don't go any farther. doesn't matter if your demons are supernatural or self-inflicted. When you stand face-to-face with someone in their addiction, you say to them, look, you need to make a choice to get out of here. The response is usually, oh, I can't do it. Leave me alone. This is who I am. Don't torture me with the idea that I could be more than this nonsense every single one of us is a beloved child of God made in his image 
we choose to believe that or obscure it. Look at verse 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. We've talked about naming before. Names have power. Still, this is still true. Names still have power. If you don't believe me, ask any salesman who makes their living based on tips or commission. You see, they'll use names a lot. Ancient rabbis had an order of exorcism that usually began by demanding that a demon name itself so they could be specific in casting it out. Steve, get out of that man. What, you don't think there are demons named Steve? Legion is the Roman word for an army of 6,000 men. Now, this is probably not literal to the number of demons in this person. It was not literal to the number of men. Very few legions actually were filled to 6,000. But since naming was an important part of the exorcism ritual... It's possible this could be the demons trying to avoid giving any names. We'll see if that does them any good when they're talking to Jesus. Verse 10. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside and the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs! Allow us to go into them! Spirits, apparently, according to the old exorcism manuals, uh, liked to negotiate for their own survival. According to the ancient texts, demons would often negotiate for a place to go if they found pressure put on them that was too great for them to resist. Verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Does anyone find it upsetting that Jesus would let the demons go into the pigs instead of just casting them out? 2,000 animals died. Apparently you're all untouched. That's all right. There's a matter of priorities here. One human life was more important than this whole giant herd of pigs. And don't get me wrong... 2,000 is a giant herd of pigs in those days. A herd of pigs back then was like 20. So this is the entire town's population of pigs. Probably the entire Decapolis population of pigs. It is speculated that uh, this is possibly where they were raising pigs for sacrifice to some of the Greek temples. Because even though this was supposedly a Jewish area, it is a Greek influence. What is one thing Orthodox Jews do not eat? Orc. Why are they raising pigs? Maybe we shouldn't feel so bad for them after all. What has just happened here is a huge demonstration that something has occurred. Some dramatic something has just occurred. Verse 14 says, Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town in the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. Praise God, what a great thing! And they were thrilled! Oh wait, that's not what it says in Scripture. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What's going on? 
That man was crazy. He's wearing pants now. Ah! Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus, please come fix our lives the same way. This is not what it says in Scripture. No. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Get out. Get out of here, Jesus. We're afraid of the kind of power that could cause someone's life to change so dramatically in such a short period of time. We're afraid of the power that would destroy all these pigs. We're not mad at you because we know we shouldn't have been raising them in the first place. But you know, just go. The majesty and wonder of this man Jesus, just being near him was torture to evil spirits. Being near him must have lifted the human spirit. Why didn't they just love him and wanted him to stay with them? But no, they wanted him to leave. We don't understand you, so we are afraid of you. They didn't even try to figure him out. They just said, please go. And as we'll see in the next verse, he does, because Jesus never forces himself on anyone. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, because he's leaving, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Take me away. He's returned to his humanity. He wants to go with the one who restored him. That makes perfect sense to me. He wants to go away from the area where he is best known as a guy howling at gravestones while he's not wearing any pants. That also makes sense to me. These people have seen me at my worst. Take me with you. Verse 19. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. What an amazing ministry he must have had. You saw me. I was lost. I lived in a graveyard. I spent my nights howling at the moon. I cut myself. Because there was no other way to stop the pain. People would chain me up. I would break the chains and chase them away. But Jesus came to me. He healed me. He wants to heal you. Everyone has their own ministry to do. For some people, Jesus says, come follow me, and he expected them to go travel with him. For others, he said, come follow me, and he expected them to stay right where they were. Some people he calls to a life of ministry as a pastor, or a teacher, or a farmer, or a cab driver, or a writer. This man, he restored. He didn't let him follow him across the lake. Instead, he said, go out, show your changed lives among the very people who will be most affected by your healing. Because if he comes and tells that story in Jerusalem, they're going to be like, some guy who said he was crazy, and now he's better. But he goes home and tells that. People are like, oh my gosh. 
Have you seen what happened to Stephen? He's a different person because he met this guy named Jesus. This guy made it his mission to make sure everyone heard what Jesus had done for him. It says he went to the Decapolis. That means he went around all ten cities. Made sure everyone in this region knew what happened. And it doesn't mean that they were converted. It doesn't even necessarily mean they believed the guy. It does mean that they were amazed. Something happened. And perhaps some of those people came to faith in God right there of their own. And perhaps others had seeds planted for a later messenger like Paul or Priscilla to come and water. And perhaps some of them were afraid to let that kind of power anywhere near their lives. Maybe some even preferred to live as animals rather than as creations who are made in the image of the holy and powerful God who put together the universe. What do you do when Jesus offers you restoration to the community of believers? Because he doesn't just call you to be fixed personally. He wants you back in community. He sent this man back into community to be part of his family, to be part of the larger family of his community. Faith is a wonderful thing, and we all come to faith individually, and we all live out our lives in our own ways, but none of us does it alone. When we face life as God intended us to, we recognize it is not good for humans to be alone. Because that's what God said back in Genesis 2. We are supposed to be a community, a family together. And together we are supposed to face our trials. Together we seek forgiveness for our sins. Together we wrestle out the details of what it means to live the way God intended. As human beings, by the way. Not as animals. And together we find ways to help each other claim the lives that God makes available to us. We do it together. So often I look outside the walls of the church and I see the people on the streets and I say, come be together with us. And a lot of times they're like, I can't. I don't feel comfortable coming indoors. I don't feel comfortable. There's people who might look at me funny. This man is known for running around with no pants, howling at the moon. Jesus didn't say, come with me and we'll go to your ten cities. He said, go home. Tell them what God's done for you. Together. Find ways to do this together. Because ain't none of us gets out alone. Right? Let me close in prayer, and then I just have a couple of things to say beyond that. Father God, thank you so much for creating us in your image. Lord, please forgive us for the things that bow into our lives and the actions which scar or disfigure the view of that should shine out from each of us. Please help us not to be afraid of the power that You can wield in our lives. Please help us to restore or be restored to what we can be. Instill in us the desire to follow Jesus however we can best serve You. And Father, we pray that You fill us with Your Holy Spirit and set us apart from the world around us even while we live in it. Together. All this we ask you in the name of your Son, Jesus, who was the Christ. Amen. 1 Peter 5, verses 6-11 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, 
so that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind because your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Some people worry that there's no way to resist him. It says right here, we can resist him. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You've got people to turn to everywhere in the world. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. No matter what circumstances bring our way, we can resist them. And know that the whole family of believers faces their own trials, just like we do. We are never alone. When we cling to Christ, we will always reach the light through the darkness. Don't forget the purpose of the adversary the Satan is to destroy the image of God that is in each one of us. According to Genesis, when God created humankind, he made us in his image and he breathed his life into us with his breath. He built us to be more than trees, more than fish, more than animals, and he created us to have a responsibility to live in this world and care for it. And while we should and we must care for the animals around us, we should also remember that we are more than they are. To give ourselves up and to embrace animalistic behaviors is wrong. I see people every day who live as if they are no more than a beast in human form. They degrade themselves to feed the needs of the instant and ignore the fact that they are made to be more than that. You are made to be more than that. If you are one of those people, I beg you, ask Jesus to restore you. He might choose to restore you like that, Or, he may choose to have you work your way out one step at a time because that is what's best for you. I used to get to preach every week to people in recovery. And there are people who are like, God didn't just fix me. I'm like, no, because that wouldn't help you. Sometimes you need to go one step at a time so that you learn how to live life properly. Stop chewing on your leg and start relearning how to open the trap instead. And if any of you think I'm only referring to people who are poor or addicted, you're wrong. Because no matter our wealth or our social standing in this world, every one of us needs to fight to keep our humanity and to live out the image of God inside of us. Finally, and I promise this is finally, Hebrews 13.6 says, We say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And that includes every supernatural demon that you might worry about. And every one of the natural ones. So, we've already prayed. Wherever you go, there's nothing to fear because God is already there. Go with God. Have a blessed week.